Hello and welcome to Tales from Wisteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. We are the boyfriends. I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And we are here today with season six, episode 12. You gotta get a gimmick. You gotta get a gimmick. I think we're both in a pretty good mood. We've just basically come home after watching Eurovision 2023. Yeah. That was great. It was great. This year was a great Eurovision, guys. My favourites were Finland and Norway. Finland were fantastic. Norway was brilliant. Moldova. Dover was wonderfully weird and so was Sweden okay congratulations to Sweden for winning because you were you were fantastic and Moldova always gives it I don't know what it is that Moldova give but it's it it is it. It is it. Every single time. And for all of my other late 20s, 30s people that listen, I saw Avril Lavigne on Tuesday. It was amazing. He's not stopped listening to her. I know. It was a nostalgia trip for me and my brother and sister. I got tickets for them as a Christmas present for Christmas 2019. The show was supposed to be in April 2020. It's been three years. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to Miss Avril if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. So yeah, what a mood. It's been a great week. Indeed it has. Do you have any trivia for us? I do. So the episode aired on the 10th of January 2010 and was directed by David Grossman and written by Joe Keenan. So in this episode, obviously, we have the reading of Carl's will, which is very early on. And Carl's son, Evan, is not there when his will is being read, nor was he there at the funeral or even mentioned... I don't even remember Evan, to be honest. Evan was like the oh, he's the weird kid one that was like drawing all of the blood and guts and shit in Seasons Class. Yeah, I remember that now. So the episode's title takes its name from a Stephen Sondheim and Julia Stein hit song of the same name, which features in the Broadway musical Gypsy. The scene of Terry Hatcher stripping in the strip club was shot on December 8th, 2009, which was Terry's 45th birthday. The shoot took place at Spearmint Rhino Strip Club and Hatcher said that she was comfortable with the outfit she wore and Hatcher asked her former teacher Sheila Kelly to help her choreograph her routine and Sheila runs a company called S Factor which is a business that trains women the art of stripping for exercise purposes. 45 and girls still got it. Right. So the Italian title translates to masks, the German is all facade and the French is take it off. Nice. Which is fabulous. Literal. So on Monday the 4th, the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest structure ever built, opens to the public in Dubai. An Egyptian archaeologist discovered the largest tomb yet discovered in ancient Soraka necropolis. Mm -hmm. On the Tuesday, which is the 5th, the United Kingdom is once again deluged by heavy snowfall as the country endures its worst cold snap since 1979. Damn. That was the 2010s. All the schools were closed. I remember that. I loved the schools being closed. It was snowed. so good. (laughs) And having to listen to the radio to hear if your school was closed. I remember that. Oh, it was always so exciting. Oh, the nostalgia of it. Yeah. And Slovakia admits responsibility for a major bomb alert on Dorset Street in Dublin, Ireland after planting explosives on a civilian as a test. What? What the hell? Apparently. I need context. (laughs) I don't have context. I just took that line. Okay. Oh, y'all, that happened on Tuesday, the 5th of January 2010. So if you're that interested in that, give it a Google. We don't have time. We're not a news podcast predominantly. If if you feel the civilian, please get in touch. (laughs) Yes, please. Uh, So Thursday the 7th, James Cameron's Avatar is expected to become the second highest grossing movie of all time just passing Lord of the Rings Returns of the King. Oh yeah, what a time to be alive. Avatar was all the rage. It was. And Friday the 8th, the Portuguese Parliament approves a bill to legalise same-sex marriage. We love to see. In 2010? Yeah. Jesus, catching up, aren't you? And the Ugandan death penalty for homosexuality may be declared not necessary. 
<laughs> it's not necessary anymore. It's not necessary. <laughs> Death, that seems a little bit harsh. We'll put him in a camp. Oh, God. Yeah. So, and the number one song in the US was TikTok by Key Dollar Sign Ha. Still, okay. Still. And the number one song in the UK was Replay by Ayaz. Oh, cool. That's not a bad song. Shardy's like a melody. And I think it's that song. And that's all the trivia we have. Fantastic. Well, okay then. Previously, the plane disaster caused Orson to sustain a lifelong injury. Lynette lost one of her unborn babies. And it turns out that Carl died in the crash. Yes. Which leads us to this episode. Indeed. So, following Carl's death, he leaves everyone a bunch of stuff. And much to except his son. Except Serena. Except, except Serena. <laughs> and much to Susan's surprise, he leaves her his share in a business which he kept secret from her. So even in death, what a smarmy prick. Right, but he did leave Julie money, right? yes. cash and securities, and we love that. Like, I bet he left her a lot because he ran his own law firm. Do you reckon that she still has his car? Well, no, we didn't really see them swap back, but we can kind of assume they did because he was only supposed to be lending her his car for a short amount of time. I'd be like, I want his car. <laughs> it's mine now. Anyway, it turns out that this very successful business is a strip club. Yeah. And this is like a spin-off. Like, Susan got shares in a business. This is like opening opening episode of uh, Susan Delfino's spin-off show. Like, opening episode. Yes. She gets shares in a business and she becomes Susan Delfino, CEO. It really could be a whole new show. Let's start with Susan. We'll just go right into that whole story. <laughs> Mary Alice narrates about all the different types of men who go to strip clubs, from military men to CEOs, and says that it can upset all types of women. And we cut to Susan in the strip club, talking to the other part owner, who talks about how good Carl was as a part owner. Of course he was. Yeah, oh my god, I bet he was invested. Susan says she wants to sell her part of the business, but the man's trying to convince her not to, as it's a very lucrative business. One of the dancers then approaches Susan and introduces herself, and we have a clip. Thanks, but I- I'm not here for the show. I just found out that I own half this place. Oh, no kidding. Well, nice to meet you. I'm Jennifer Morelli, but at 10 o'clock, I'm Destiny. Oh, I'm Susan Delfino. At 10 o'clock, I'm in a flannel nightgown. <laughs> hey, we have a Delfino that comes in here. Really? Mike, that's it, Mike Delfino. Tall guy, brown hair, nice smile. Big busted nose? Oh, I don't think so. We'll wait till the next time you see him. Susan's so judgy in this scene. Like when the, I think his name's Randy, whatever his name is, trying to like convince Susan to keep hold of her share of the business. And she's like, no, I don't need a share in herpes on parade. (laughs) And I was just like, it's only to be a judgy bitch, Susan. Yeah, they try and make Susan funny and such, but sometimes she does come across as really judgy. Like in that previous episode where she looked at the doctor's certificates on the wall and Mm. they had to cut it out. But she said something like, did you get these from some medical school in some foreign country or something was that susan that was susan that was susan yeah, yeah. like just i i go here what gay doesn't love a strip club i've, never, get, been, gays, I've never been to a strip club. gays i love i've never been to a strip club but i love the idea of a strip club like just seeing women being strong and sexy and powerful as long as the women are happy and they're safe let them do what they want to do okay yeah i think calling it herpes whatever is a bit of a misunderstanding considering that it's not somewhere that you go for sex no like they ha- they very strictly have the men can't touch the women rules and all sorts of things yeah so. they're, they're strippers they're not prostitutes or sex workers yeah so not sure why she's being so judgy here it's, it's a fantasy that's what they're selling to the men you know she brings this up to mike later but he says he's only there because he's a plumber and denies that he goes there for you know the client element Mm. seeing that it bothers her he does offer to turn down work from there in the future but susan says that she forbids it anyway which then upsets mike who says that she can't tell him what he can and can't do 
which is correct like susan you can't control mike's business like if it's one thing for mike to just be like yeah i go there because i enjoy a strip club or what have you and susan's like it really bothers me can you not do that again but this is mike's business Mike's like they're they're one of my clients that's the thing it almost felt like a really healthy relationship moment where she said it does bother me and he was like okay i won't do it and i thought that's really nice and then because it's a tv show it evolved and now it's a thing (laughs) also there's a goof in this Um, if you look very closely what is it which i looked very closely because i am me when mike walks in and she's like have you got cash for the paper boy and then he gives susan a 20 and then she sticks out her like panties or whatever and she's like wouldn't you rather stick it in here you can see the skin colored panties underneath the actual pants (laughs) that she's wearing that have like obviously to protect things from accidentally being shown on camera Mm -hmm. and you can clearly see it as someone who has worked on films before would it not have just been easier to lift the top a little bit and show the underwear and say wouldn't you rather stick it in here rather than have to pull the underwear forward but have some skin colored underwear underneath in case of such things like couldn't you have just redone that how that was working so that you didn't have to go to that effort yeah honestly (laughs) so She chats about it with Gabby, Karen, and Lee, who actually seem to think it's fine and that everyone should be able to fantasize. So it turns out that everyone in the friendship group that she's talking to about it doesn't necessarily agree with her. But Karen also in the scene admits that she fantasizes about Tom. In those tan shorts. And Lee (laughs) agrees with this and they have a toast to it at one point. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Absolutely love this scene. I mean, in all fairness, we have seen Doug Savant in the Speedo in season, I think, one or two. Yeah. So, fair dues. <laughs> I want to see Tom in these tan shorts now. I'm curious about the tan shorts. I bet his butt looks great. Right. Fourth of July party, tan shorts. Like, I immediately think of, like, short shorts. But Tom wouldn't be wearing short shorts. Or, like, Lara Croft br- yeah. tan shorts. Yeah. Like, when he's, <laughs> when he's talking about Tom Scarver in those tan shorts, and they're like, oh, okay. In my mind, it's, it's Doug Savant in Lara Croft's like short shorts but they're they're probably like the knee yeah knee length yeah so another night mike goes to the strip club to fix a toilet but apparently they never called about that susan then comes onto the stage and does a strip tease and she gets introduced what was the name miss fix it miss fix it susan comes on as miss fix it and she looks fucking fierce but as far as like pseudonyms and fake names drag names and all of these things go no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's not great no miss fix it it sounds like an advert for like screwdrivers aimed at women do you know what it sounds like it sounds like if the company that makes mr muscle tried to go like oh okay well it's really sexist to have mr muscle so we'll have we'll create like an alternate to mr muscle which is miss fix it <laughs> right miss fix it for the women that do it too you know <laughs> So, Mike doesn't like this very much, but Susan repeats his own words back to him saying, it's completely innocent, right? And then he forbids her from taking her bra off as she is stripping very well. Really well. In the end, he puts his jacket around her and apologizes for everything and they sort of see eye to eye on it now. And he carries her out of the club very romantically. We have to do a shout out to Terry Hatcher for this whole scene Mm. because she was confident. She was sexy. Yeah, it was just Terry (laughs) doing great. So credit to you, Terry. If you did that on your 45th birthday, credit to you. That's such a power play. Right? Oh my God. She's like, bitch, I'm 45 and I'm working this pole. Aging so gracefully, not because of how she looks or her body, but just because she has the confidence and power and energy to just be like, it's my birthday. I'm stripping. Yeah. On TV. Yeah. Like, I I don't even think I'd have the confidence to do that right now, let alone like age me another 10, 15 years. 
Right, if I was in a film stripping, I would be the comedy character that yeah. I was laughing at. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. The Melissa McCarthy. Oh, yeah, I'd be the Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, you would. The Mike and Molly. Yeah. That's me. Now let's move on to another story. To thank Lynette for saving their daughter, Gabby and Carlos give them a brand new TV. Them being Lynette and Tom. Mm. But Lynette was the one that saved her, so it's Lynette's TV. Yeah, very As... <laughs> quick resolution. Lynette's job is safe. There yeah. we go. As well as a sorry for everything that's happened recently, Carlos then says he's covering Lynette while she's off, and Tom offers to fill in while she's on maternity leave, which Carlos says yes to. He thinks it's great, but very clearly Lynette thinks that this is a bad idea. Yeah, because I I know, obviously we find out later what Lynette is thinking, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Again, Tom and Lynette have quite a sad story in this episode, but... Like, even from the very beginning, you can see what Lynette's fear is. You can see that Lynette's fear is that she will have the kid and be expected to become a stay-at-home mum again, and Tom's already swooped in to pick up Lynette's job, and so she won't be needed again. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that in her in her face. When... Luckily, this has a deeper angle than just she doesn't think Tom would be good here, and she's worried about, like, like an early mm. season kind of thing. You know, we had that in, like, season two or something. Yeah, um, yeah. The next day, Tom returns home from his first day of work. They talk about their days, and Lynette says that she's packing up some of the outfits they were given for the twins to give to charity, since they're only going to need one end of each outfit now. Although, it's good to have backups. It is good to have backups, yes. Tom then shows her a proposal that he's been working on, and Lynette tries to come to the rescue, but Tom says that Carlos and the other guy, whoever they were talking about, loved it. They said it was the best proposal they'd ever seen, bar none, and Lynette seems really bothered by this. Lynette barely read Tom's proposal and was immediately like, hmm, no. Like, just give She Tom doesn't a... have a lot of faith in him. No, give him a little faith. And I know you want, I know Lynette wants to sabotage again, but, you know, she does it so well. But it, she's yeah. she's slipping because she's making it very obvious that she's trying to sabotage her. She's like, oh no, he'd never agree to this. This is terrible. I'm glad you showed this to me. Don't worry, we can fix it. And Tom's like, I've already done it. I, I called Miss Fix It. She helped. Yeah. It's she, fixed. She wants to work. She's giving control freak vibes. Mm. Very controlling. It's not a pretty look. The next day, Lynette goes to the office. She says that she came to say hi because she was in the neighborhood, which is a load of shit. And talks to Carlos about Tom. So um, she's clearly surprised that Tom's doing well and wants to make sure that her job is basically safe and ready for when she comes back. And Carlos says, obviously it is. He then says that he thought she'd want to stay home with the baby when it's born. And Lynette asks where he got this information. Right. Who gave you that impression, Carlos? Who said it? And Carlos said it was Tom. Yeah. There you go. And this is where the problem now comes into play. Yeah, as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, Tom. Tom, for fuck, what are you doing? Stop you don't... Put, don't put words in Lynette's mouth. No, you don't do this. You don't do this without talking to Lynette first. And Car- <laughs> I love the way the scene ends with Lynette closes the door and the camera's on the other side of the door as if we, the audience, are on the outside. Mm. And it closes and you just see Carlos's scared looking face as <laughs> it that's it, closes, ending the scene. See, the problem that Lynette's now got is she keeps... Now that she's saved Carlos's child, she thinks that she's got this one up on him. And she keeps bringing it up. Like, in this scene, it was constantly <laughs> like, and I'm saying this is the woman that dove in front of a propeller to protect your child. And I'm just like, Lynette. I can't believe she used it so quickly. Yeah, I know, <laughs> like, like, You could have banked it. Literally, instantly, she's using it straight away. Like, they're, they're giving her televisions and stuff. And they're like, honestly, you would have done the same thing. Don't, don't be silly. You don't need to thank us for it. And then literally two scenes later, it's, don't forget, I did nearly die. And I'm only carrying one child now because of your negligence as a parent. 
So Lynette then talks to Tom about this, and Tom admits that he spoke to Carlos about it. She asks why he thought that, when he knows that she hates being a stay-at-home mum, and Tom says it's because they just lost a baby, and he thought that she would want to stay home, which is bullshit. So, essentially he's saying that he thought it would be in her, in her best interest. Yeah, you didn't think that home. she'd want that. But, so, basically, you thought staying home would be in Lynette's best interest, and you care so much about Lynette's best interest that you go behind her back to take her job and make that decision without talking to her, because you care about her best interest. Also, you think it would be best for Lynette to stay home because they've just lost a baby after they have the first one while you're swanning off and going to a job. What's the difference between you staying home and her going to the job? I guess because Lynette is... Yes, Tom has also lost a baby, but physically Lynette has lost a baby. I get the mindset's different. I just think it's very hypocritical. It is. It is very hypocritical. He should stay home if he's making Lynette stay home. He should just be talking to Lynette about this before they make any decisions. I know Tom has said that Lynette clearly keeps trying to avoid the topic. Like, he mentions it in this scene that every time he tries to bring it up, she changes the subject or walks away or what have you. And we did see it in a previous scene, Mm -hmm. but this isn't something you just go behind your back. Like your wife's not. back and do yeah, like, you whether can't just she's... force her into it because you don't because she won't talk about it no if she's not talking about it that means she's not ready to talk about it and yeah. that's also fine it takes people you know different lengths of time for the grieving process so that is also fine they then argue about Lynette not ever telling Tom how she feels about losing one of the babies and we get a really sad moment where they, they talk about how difficult it is to only be seeing one of a pair of twins and never seeing the other one and they decide that Lynette should go back to work after the baby is born yeah and then tom grabs the bottle of wine and says he's not hungry anymore and he walks out and he also looks like he's gonna cry because doug savant's really good yeah he is a really good actor and it is a really sad scene where lynette's there just like we will spend the rest of our lives looking at one child knowing that there should have been two and how is this helpful like it's such a again it's a very raw scene can Felicity Huffman stop breaking my heart all the time she does raw emotion so her and eva longoria just do raw emotion so well. Now, let's move on to Julie's story, which is a little bit more cute and in the middle and not so serious. So, Danny and Eddie go over to Julie and let her know that he's going to be doing stand-up at the open mic night. And after he leaves, it becomes very clear that this is actually quite a weird move on his part. And apparently no one thinks that Eddie's any good at being funny. Julie then says that she's going to see some cousins of hers until the Wisteria Strangler is caught. She then asks if Danny OD'd because of her turning him down, and he lets her know that it was actually because of a lot of things, but that he's okay now. Unfortunately though, it seems that they can't get out of seeing Eddie at the open mic night. Julie just straight up said it. I can't believe she said it. You didn't try to, you know, off yourself because of me, right? Because if it is because of me, you can say it. You can say it, that's fine. You can say it. They seem to be bonding again now. Yeah, they seem to be becoming friends, kind After of. After his sort of S-word attempt. Like, is Julie starting to like him now that she thinks it's all about her? I think maybe they're becoming friends because they weren't yeah. really friends before. She just tutored him and then it got awkward when he was asking her out and stuff. Mm. But maybe now they can actually become friends, which maybe. is nice. Yeah. And poor Eddie. Like, he just wants to make a career and a name for himself. And his friends are being dicks. I'm sorry to say it. It's all played <laughs> off for laughs. Like, haha, Eddie wants to do stand-up comedy and he sucks. But his friends are dicks. And as friends, like, you would go and support him no matter how shit he is. You wouldn't be there like, we've got to find a way out of this. Oh my god, how can we get away from this horrible man? No, you cretin. As a friend, you have to sit through it. Yeah. Give some constructive criticism and just be, be a good enough friend to say, mate... It's not funny. (laughs) I either don't think this career is for you or give constructive criticism. Obviously, every person is 
you know, sucks before they become the shit. Like every everybody does. Nobody starts off as perfect in the field that they want to do. It takes work and time and energy and effort. And stand-up comedy is obviously a very difficult field to break out in. It's already very overly saturated with people. And it's very difficult to think of original material nowadays because what hasn't already been done? Well, apparently <laughs> the difference between cats and dogs hasn't been done, but we'll get there later. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. So Julie is packing with the help of Anna, although she's actually just ta- taking Julie's CDs. <laughs> yeah. And Anna says that she wants to get with Danny still. Julie then says that she should be careful not to use Danny the way that she uses other boys, and he is currently fragile. And then she offers to take her to Eddie's open mic thing so that she can hang out with Danny there. Here's the thing. Danny doesn't want Anna because Anna is so clearly after him and incredibly desperate and men always want what they can't have danny knows that he can't have julie therefore he wants julie he doesn't want anna because she makes it so obvious that he can get her whenever he wants and there's no fun in that men are animals but he also just doesn't like her they like like the chase i mean from we find out later that he barely even seems to like her at all yeah i know so even if he got with her it wouldn't go last very long no not at all they don't like each other but anna's there like why won't he notice me he doesn't notice you because you're too much there also you have nothing in common you just think he's hot yeah that's why maybe they do have stuff in common oh we'll find out exactly so later on they listen to eddie's stand-up at the open mic night and it's going horribly no one's laughing it's trash it's 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 sewer gates it's giving utica vibes utica's um roast yeah it's giving utica vibes yeah this is what eddie's doing stand-up about the difference between cats and dogs who knew there were so many differences between cats and dogs yeah i know and he doesn't even seem to notice that he's bobbing but seriously give him some bloody criticism or at least just say it's not funny i'm yeah. not a professional comedian i can't tell you how to be better i can just tell you that i didn't laugh mm. and no one else did boo yeah julie then walks out with porter to leave anna and danny alone which was a task and a half for julie to get De- porter out of there jesus yeah, i know what a but, but it's like 20 degrees in here Ooh, now I feel a chill. <laughs> but Danny finds a reason to go. He's such an asshole. <laughs> Danny doesn't want to be alone with Anna. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the toilet. I need to poop. No, yeah, this is such... Danny is an asshole in the scene. He's like, not... This isn't cool. Like, the girl likes you, but there's no need to be an ass about it. Like, if you don't like her, that's fine. But He's so uncomfortable with the situation. It's almost like he's on the spectrum. He's just like, I'm so uncomfortable, I will just leave. No, I know. And he's literally there like, oh, it's difficult for anybody else to be interested in you and you're so interested in you. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll get to that. So Anna then asks him why he isn't into her. And he says it's because she's conceited, basically. She doesn't take this very well and says that he's actually a lot worse. And then she says some mean comments about him ODing and wanting attention. And after a little bit of... Oh, I'm glad. I'm so sorry. I took it too far. (laughs) He says that he likes her more and that she's cute and blunt. He likes when she's cute and blunt. Yeah. And I was like... Oh, this doesn't seem like a... Oh, this is well, he un- says, I like the blunt Anna more than the cute Anna. Oh, yeah, and she's like, you think I'm cute? So you think I'm cute. Um, <laughs> but is it bad that I don't believe this was mean of Anna? Because Danny was being shitty to her first. And so actually, I'm like, do you know what, Anna? Cards are off the table. You say what you want. Get some. Like, he was... Com- what he said was completely uncalled for. Yeah, get some digs in there. Because <laughs> she was just like, you did not just call me conceited. And he's like, relax, I didn't ask you to spell it. Yeah, he was a bit mean. He's because he's just, he's basically just like I don't want to get with someone who doesn't stop looking at themselves in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, you're arrogant, vain, and you're clearly a fucking dumbass, and so I don't want to be with you. And I'm like, shut up, Danny, you asshole. Mm. I don't think this relationship is going to go well if it happens. It doesn't seem healthy. <laughs> 
No, but they could grow together. Anna is still young. Both of them are young, to be fair. Yeah. Danny are. just looks older than he is because he's probably being played by a person that's five years older than the actual character's age. But both of them are still very young. Yeah, they, are, so they are kids. There's room for, for the both of them to grow together or grow apart. Now let's move on to Gabby's story. Gabby and Carlos go to, potentially, Juanita's next school. Following the sort of mini interview chat thing, I'm not, I'm not really sure what you call it, the guy says that they need more diversity, and Juanita is surprised to hear that she is Mexican. A diversity choice. Yeah, she's a diversity tick. Anyway, she's surprised to hear that she is Mexican for some reason, yeah. and we have a clip. I'm Mexican. Oh, honey, what did you just say? He called me Mexican. You are Mexican, honey. You know that. <laughs> Since when? I thought we were American. Yes, but our ancestors came from Mexico. <laughs> really? So we're like those people who sell oranges on the side of the road? You're busy. We should go. Thank you so very much for your time. Oh, my. We're like the people who sell oranges on the side of the road. Oh, that made me so uncomfortable. I was like, <laughs> Juanita. What is Carlos playing at? Because I know both, like, before all the haters come for me, I know that both Gabby and Carlos should be teaching her this. But it's been very clear from pretty early on in the show that Carlos has a much closer identity to his heritage than Gabby does. Yeah, but he's not really around that much as he is at work. Yeah, he may not might not have been around for a while because of work. What happened to that five-year period where he was blind, bitch? Yes, it is odd. There's a bit more about it in the episode, as you know. Yeah, we get but, to it, but... But it is odd. He's also clearly trying to play up the whole Mexican thing now that he's heard about the diversity um, inclusion. Mexico. He's like, your ancestors are from Mexico. And I was like, <laughs> Carlos, you would never pronounce it that way. I think he has before. Maybe, but I think he it has did before, feel like yeah. he was playing it up. But yeah. it was funny. So yeah. they're driving home. And then it becomes very apparent to Gabby and Carlos that they haven't done enough to show Juanita her heritage. And then they look around and just see white people everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and the white stuff as well. Like the white, this is the whitest neighborhood ever. Like the cycling, the tennis, the white skating, like got, the gardening. Bree waving. Bree and Andrew were gardening together. You had Parker riding by on a bike. You had some chick with a tennis racket over her shoulder talking to some guy. Like it's the whitest. Any, anything that could be remotely related to white people. It's white suburbia. And have people of color go, white people i know that this is a bit of a tangent and i really hate the term woke being used negatively all the time mm. but you know how modern disney films are trying to be woke but they always really shove their what they're trying to tell you down your throat which then make an, people hate them yeah to such an obvious degree and then this show i'm probably giving way too much credit again but this show just shows how you can actually show symbolically and in just a sweeping shot without having to, having to say any words about how people can feel surrounded by white people and how, what that does to you in just like a pan pan in yeah shot. it was like a pan shot there were no words there whatsoever and um it was one scene it was like one little scene which showed us everything we needed to see for the sake of their storyline going forward in this episode we didn't need it in every single scene with gabby and carlos now to reiterate to us this is what their story is don't forget what their story is it's about this later on gabby is making drinks to celebrate the end of homeschooling but carlos doesn't think that she should go to that school he thinks that she should go to another school which is apparently a bit worse and a bit further away but it has more latina people so yeah it like has her. more people like her yeah Gabby hates the idea and says Juanita shouldn't be around those people, and, and I quote those people, end quote. Yeah. And Carlos realises that 
Juanita is racist to Mexicans because Gabby is a self-hating Latina woman. Yeah, pretty much. And he makes some valid points. He really So does. it doesn't look good, Gabby, when he's reeling off the list of things. Like, it doesn't look good. Yeah, here are my bullet points. Yeah. Here's a list. She then throws a drink in his face and does a walk-off. Yeah, brilliant. Because she can't speak the language and she's claiming that it's because she doesn't want him and the girls plotting behind her back. That's a very, that's such a Gabby thing to say. That's yeah. hilarious. She's like, because I don't understand it and I don't want you guys plodding behind my back. So Gabby is looking at some old photos and Carlos mistakenly thinks that her house from when she was five years old was a tool shed. Mm. Which is a great way of showing how poor she was, but it's also like, Carlos. I love the fact <laughs> that all of Gabby's family stuff is in the smallest, tattiest box in her closet. Like, we see the pan of her closet and she's looking around and putting something away. And you've got all these big boxes, shoe boxes, really elaborate, extravagant boxes and stuff. And then there's this one tiny little tatty-ass boring box that I just wouldn't even land on when you're looking around in the scene. And that's the symbolism of it. That's literally what's got all her family photos and shit in. It's very simple. It's all you need. It yeah. gets the message. She talks about how she hated the town because everyone was so poor and Mexican which she, obviously she always associated as being the same thing, and says that she wants more for their kids and that she wants them not to live in poverty, that kind of poverty. She then reminisces about her father with Carlos while they look at fo- a photo of him, and he says about how much her father must have sacrificed to get her here, and that everything they have now started from this proud Mexican man, mm. and that the girls should know about that. And Gabby agrees with that. Yeah, and the girls should know about that. But what a really lovely way of saying the girls deserve to know about their heritage, even if it's things that you didn't enjoy, things that you weren't proud of, but look at what he did to get you here. Yeah. Wonderful. I am really resonated with Gabby's story in this episode. Yeah. To a certain Because of your Mexican heritage? Yeah, because of my Mexican. No, I'm not really Mexican. (laughs) Partly because she likes to get takeout, clearly. She doesn't like to cook even. And I resonate with that, partly because she really doesn't seem to, um, I wouldn't say care, that sounds horrible, but for lack of a better word, care about her heritage, which I really don't, mm-hmm. even though I've got a whole history and heritage on like, one side of my family that I know absolutely nothing about. Completely understandable, um, though, that you well, wouldn't want to. Yeah, and just, I think a lot of gay people really would identify with Gabby's sort of mentality of growing up in this small, tiny, insignificant town and wanting nothing more than to prove to everybody in that town that they are somebody that they're not meant to be here and they're meant to do greater things. Exactly. As Avril Lavigne once said, I'll spread my wings and I'll learn how to fly. I'll do what it takes till I touch the sky. That was Kelly Clarkson. Avril Lavigne wrote it. Yeah, I know, but Kelly Clarkson sang it, so Kelly said it. So did Avril. Oh yeah, but Kelly Clarkson released it. Now let's move on to the final part of the episode, which is Bree's story. Mm. So Bree has Reverend Sykes over and gives some money to him for the church, and it's basically to make herself feel better for some reason. Right, what Bree is doing here isn't charity, even though Reverend Sykes is like, what a wonderful display of charity. It's guilt. She's feeling awful, so she's giving all this money. Yeah, it's more about making herself feel better. So the act of charity, it's like, well, you're helping, but you know, it's about you, really. Well, yeah. She then reveals that it's because she had an affair with Carl and Orson got her in the plane crash and now he's in a wheelchair so father what's his face then says that she needs to look after Orson to do right by him and oh no this literally makes no sense like you feel awful and you don't love this man but you must care for him for the rest of his life and make yourself feel miserable so that you can be exceptional to heaven in the eyes of the Lord look I mean on paper yeah she cheated cheating's wrong but look at the context she was basically his prisoner yeah Bree goes to visit Orson who doesn't seem too happy about his situation saying that he wants to run the doctors over with his chair. 
At least Orson can joke about it as well. And then Brie offers to take him home. Orson takes this rather poorly and says that he is still going through with the divorce following her cheating with Carl. Mm. He then tries to do the wheelchair version of a walkout, which I guess is a rollout. Yeah. But he's blocked by a door. So he's coming to realise he, there are obstacles now. There are going to be things that he now can't do without the aid of someone. And I also noticed that they have they wrote into this episode saying that the doctors are saying that Orson might be able to walk again someday. Just in case. Just Otherwise... in case. Like, God forbid the writers commit to something. Like, they've got to get out and like, have a get-out clause just in case. Well, Kyle McLaughlin might not want to be in a wheelchair forever. No. For this show. No. But Brie then says that he is coming home with her because she's not. she's having none of it. Later, Brie has Mike over making a ramp for Orson and calls the hospital to let Orson know, but apparently he's already checked out. And shitty with Mike about it as well. A little bit. Then she goes outside, talks to Mike, goes to call the hospital, and Mike continues to do the, the ramp. The hammering, yeah. And then Brie turns to Mike and she's like, Mike, can you stop hammering? And I'm like, bitch, you just walked outside. Go back indoors. Also, you're paying me to make this. Or I'm doing it out of kindness because it's not plumbing. So I guess it's not a business thing. Why don't you just go inside and make the call? Yeah, like go go inside and make the call. You came out to me. She then sees Karen and Roy just down the road a little bit, setting up a ramp of their own. And it turns out that Orson is moving in with them. She goes in to talk to him, and it turns out that he's going to use divorce money to pay his way. But after Bree says that these kind of settlements can take years, Karen basically kicks him out, and he has to go back to his own house, which Bree just sort of wheels him to, and he was like, help, my wife is taking me prisoner. And Mike was like, I feel you, buddy. Couple of things as well. How is Orson inside the house if they're only making the ramp now? Yeah, it's not like they could have lifted him up, surely. No. And so Brie just walks in, like she walks up the steps and goes into Karen's house and Orson's there in the front room. And I'm like, how did you get inside? Maybe he went through the... Maybe it's easier to go the back way, but obviously you're not going to go the back way the whole time. We do, most of the time. That's not a euphemism, guys. (laughs) No, that's different. (laughs) But also we have steps at the back. That's true. Also, their ramp is a bit steep. Yeah. They had a real steep ramp. Like They wanted to have a good time when he leaves. <laughs> yeah, Mike, Mike's ramp twists up. It goes like a, like around a little bit, like a almost like a bendy kind of way. So That's that a pain. It, so that it doesn't go up as steep and it can go a little bit slower. But Karen and Roy's ramp is like a bloody hill. It goes straight up pretty much. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have the arm strength to tackle Karen and Roy's ramp. I don't know what's best because the one that goes around... Like Breeze one seems like it'd be a pain, but I guess it makes more sense when you're getting right out of the car. Mm. I don't know. So they're having dinner at the table, and Bree is desperately trying to make conversation, but Orson isn't having any of it. He says he knows what she's doing as Reverend Sykes stopped by and kind of implied that Bree was taking him in, kind of like a charity case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's this fuck, Reverend Sykes? How's it supposed to make Orson feel? Reverend Sykes is like, yeah, I'm really proud of um, convincing Bree to have you as like her little project. Bree then says he has to let her help him so that she can get into heaven. And Orson says that he will find a way to make her happy again. It was very icky, this scene, that bit. I just, uh... Yeah, it was. So it's like, so it's for you again. Mm-hmm. He then asks her to heat up some soup and get him some more wine. And then he asks her to make a dessert, which he knows takes an hour to prepare. Creme brulee. So he's back to his old ways and Brie is the housewife slave again. Yeah, because he knows he's got all of this control now. Brie is needing him. And to be fair, it's kind of what Brie deserves in this instance because she's using him. 
Yeah, indeed. Whereas really, you've got a steep ramp, push him down it, roll him into the road and close the door. Yeah. I'm sick of it. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, Brie doesn't want to go to hell and she's realised the error of her ways and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but now you're using him to, to ease your guilt. So, fine. Your actions unintentionally caused Orson to end up in a wheelchair. You now feel guilt. And so Orson's going to get what he can get out of this as well. Yeah, and the only way that the story could be satisfying because we've already done awesome being an evil dick to her like this so the only way that this could be satisfying again is if being in a wheelchair and having his wife help him him. humbles him and he can learn from his ways and change a bit yeah but but we'll see if that happens but at the moment the only small wins awesome can get at the moment right now is a last minute grand brulee and that's where the episode ends so we had some highs, we had some lows, we had some laughs, we had some cries. Mm. <laughs> As a good episode. Let's move on to our next segment where Joel is going to give us the gayest moment and the straightest moment of the episode. So what do you have for the gayest moment? So my award for gayest moment goes to Gabby for hating the town that she grew up in and finding it so small like she was meant for bigger and better things. I know, right? One day I'll get a bus out of this town and move to this big city. Where I'll make my <laughs> make my dreams come true. I'll work my way up from the ground. I'll become a star. Yeah. Or a CEO or something. I'll make something of my life and I won't stay in that one horse town. Yeah. That poor one horse that always gets called upon. So, yeah, congratulations, Gabby. And then what do you have for straightest moment? My award for straightest moment. (laughs) It goes to Mike for having no problem with men leering at women until it's his wife or his (laughs) daughter or something. And then suddenly it's like, no, this is now a problem. Right? He's like, it's a noble profession. You shouldn't judge it. Not my daughter, not my wife. Right? Yeah, I know. He's there like, oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just there. I'm just having a beer. Like, I don't mind. Like, they're just, they're doing it. They're doing their thing. They're earning their money. And then Susan comes them. out, threatens to take her bra off. And he's like, get off the stage. You're embarrassing this family. Right? You're bringing shame upon this family. Dishonor. Dishonor on your cow. Yeah. And now we move on to Bees Awards for best and worst parent. So who do you have for the best parent? Okay, so my award for... Best parent of the episode. I'm going to give this to Bree for having a nice gardening moment with Andrew. Fair enough. I would say yes. I'm really sorry. I've been really lackluster with the best and worst parents, and I didn't want to go another week without having one. Yeah, I know. So, Bree, <laughs> well done. Why not? Yeah, it was nice to see Andrew again. And who do you have for the worst parent? My award for... Worst parent of the episode... I kind of want to make it a joint one for Gabby and Carlos for making money to grow up to be a self-hating Mexican, Mm. which I know from the episode looks like it was mainly a Gabby thing. But I mean, as you have mentioned in our talks, Carlos had plenty of time as well. There are two parents. Talk to her about her heritage. Yeah. And yeah, I I think that's a joint effort. I, I would, yes. I say in this instance, it can be a joint They've only got the one mantelpiece to share between the two of them, so there's plenty of room for another award that they yeah. can both have. Exactly. So it's, t- it's not like I'm splitting it between par- different parents. No. Bravo, bravo. Fucking bravo. That was season six, episode 12. You gotta get a gimmick. Mm-hmm. So if anyone has any questions, queries, comments and theories, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review, and you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. 
You can also email us at boyfriendsreview@outlook.com, and our artwork is done by Louis, who you can find on Instagram at docredmonkdesign. And there is a link to his Etsy page as well, and he does do commissions. Please, also, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that's the main one, or anywhere else that you, any other podcast provider where yeah. you get us from. I don't know if there's like a Spotify podcast review section or something. I'm not sure, actually. I don't think so. Join us next time when we'll be back in your ear holes with Season 6, Episode 13, How About a Friendly Shrink. Ah. Oh. See you then. See you then, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you.